0: Hey, Laura murphy here. Every day, Russian tanks and artillery are getting closer to the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. At the same time, another flank of Russian forces is sweeping across the country's south. Many Ukrainians living in southern cities like Odessa traditionally speak Russian and have family ties and a culture that spans the two countries. These are some of the Ukrainians Putin believed would welcome his forces as liberators, But he was wrong. Today, we're playing an episode from Today in Focus, our global news podcast, where Sean Walker, the Guardian's Central and Eastern Europe correspondent, describes how he's seen Vladimir Putin's invasion bring a divided Ukraine together. And just a warning, this episode contains some swearing. Okay, here's Today in Focus presenter Michael Safi.
1: Guardian foreign correspondent Sean Walker has been travelling across Ukraine the past fortnight sending us notes of what he's seeing.
2: I'm at the main train station in Kiev at uh, two o'clock, and it's just uh, really quite a heartbreaking sight here, to be honest. Um, Thousands of people on the platform, uh, desperately people trying to barge their way onto a train is traveling to the west of the country. Women and children are being let on first, then women just met a middle-aged couple with their dog who are worrying that they're not gonna be able to get on. So soldiers and police trying to keep up some kind of order, but uh, there's an old lady I can just see walking the bags. Do you think you'll be able to get on the train? <laughs> yeah, we hope it's no system. It's just five days. Can you imagine what will happen in a month? Yeah. We will have What's... no country. Lost for words, really. It's Thursday lunchtime, and I'm just driving through the centre of Kiev. Uh, There's almost nobody on the streets uh, except for when you get to a pharmacy when there are long snaking queues outside. There are a few food shops that are open. People have either left or they're sheltering at home uh, worried about potential missiles and potentially also airstrikes now. So? Uh, Gazeta, <laughs> so we just went through uh, one of the many checkpoints on the way into kiev um, every sort of kilometer or two on the road there's uh a new post. They're more springing up every day with sandbags. Some of the bigger ones are armed by um, professional soldiers, but most of the small ones are just blokes with with guns. Uh, sometimes a bit nervous. Most of the time, friendly. Um, you know, they're they're on the hunt for suspicious uh, Russians in disguise. So they're they're sometimes suspecting that perhaps we're. J- Russians pretending to be journalists, but usually okay. Um, the one, you know, they just checked the back, checked the boot and uh, told me to uh, write that uh, Putin's a cock. So it wasn't particularly uh, difficult to get through that one.
1: And... Sean, what you've sent us from Kiev paints a picture, first of chaos as civilians desperately try to flee the city and then a kind of eerie stillness, as those who stayed behind waited for what was coming. How's the mood of the city now?
2: If you live in, in the western or the northern suburbs of Kiev, where there's actually been heavy fighting, then of course it's very different. But if you're living in the center or in the south of Kiev, there's very few people on the streets. There's a, a curfew at 8pm, but to be honest, after dark, which is about 5.30, there's absolutely nobody around. And, and yeah, it just has this this kind of very eerie and uncomfortable feeling in the city. I think there was a moment about a week ago when people suddenly started seeing on the television these images from other Ukrainian cities like Kharkiv.
1: For those familiar with Chechnya or Syria, this is very much the Russian way of war. City centres, here Ukraine's second city of Kharkiv, Of no military value, utterly devastated by indirect, indiscriminate
2: fire. Images that they couldn't have imagined seeing of, of, of centres of the city being assaulted with artillery and missiles. So you've got this this sort of strange situation where, actually, with one or two exceptions, there hasn't been any damage to to centre of Kiev and even the inner suburbs of Kiev. But there's this real. Uh, uneasy feeling of, of of waiting for what might happen. And we even had the Russian Defence Ministry saying, we are going to hit targets across Kiev uh, and, and civilians should leave. So that was a week ago and that still hasn't happened, but that threat uh, is kind of hanging in the air. And you talked about the fact that
1: pretty much all there is left open in the city is food stores and pharmacies. Is that it? Are there any other signs of normal life there?
2: I spoke to the 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 guy who runs the biggest waste collection uh, company in in Kiev and he was telling me that you know of their 30 uh, garbage trucks they've got 14 that are still going that although lots of the guys who were driving them wanted to go and fight and some of them have he was really keen that they stay behind and they they continued to collect the rubbish because he said you know this is a way it kind of reassures people if they can see that the city in in some way uh, is still functioning. So you do have these little signs of of normality amidst this this kind of surreal situation.
1: God, that kind of resilience is is extraordinary. I mean, there was an expectation around European capitals and maybe even in Moscow that Kyiv would fall quite quickly. And as you've said, that hasn't happened yet. Why? Why is it proving so difficult to take the Ukrainian capital?
2: I mean, I think there's a, it's a bit of everything, really. It's partly about the Ukrainian resistance. It's partly that, it, you know, it turned out for all these modernizations uh, over the past decade, uh, the Russian army has looked less than impressive. And I think there's just, I think the main thing, which is kind of linked to both of those things, is the fact that Russia's invasion seems to have been planned for a different kind of Ukraine, um, a Ukraine that maybe existed in 2014 and before 2014. I think there was a feeling that the Russians could come in here and it would be a bit like the Crimea operation.
1: Earlier armed men seized the regional parliament in Crimea and raised the Russian flag. They have so far issued no demands and their identity was not immediately clear
2: maybe a bit more violent they would have to round some people up they would have to put some people in prison they would have to do some fighting but essentially except for a kind of hardcore group of ukrainian nationalists they would be able to just sweep in and and be welcomed by a large majority of people and obviously that hasn't happened When you look at the videos of, of the Russian ground troops being faced with, you know, young people waving Ukrainian flags, angry grandmothers shouting at them We I think it's pretty clear they didn't expect this and this this what kind of wasn't what they were what they'd signed up for. <laughs> I spent quite a bit of time in and around Kyiv, but there was so much going on in other parts of Ukraine that I wanted to see what the situation was like outside the capital. Uh, And to me, uh, the south of Ukraine was particularly interesting. This, I think, is the area where the Russians were most convinced they were going to be able to basically walk in and be welcomed. And I thought it was important to go and see Uh, what the feeling was like and how, perhaps, that was different from Kyiv. I'm sitting in the station in Vinitsa, uh, waiting for the night train to Odessa. uh, for about the fourth or fifth time today the air raid siren is going off Um, there are thousands of people in this station probably and uh, some of them are jumping up to run but it's not because of the air raid siren which everyone's got used to by now Uh, they're actually going to get their train uh, which is coming to the platform Uh, we're going south to Odessa, I think almost nobody is going to be going in that direction but uh, lots of people going to the west, uh, to the safer parts of Ukraine and eventually across the border.
1: Sean, I guess the first thing is I'm slightly surprised that in the midst of a war you can still take a train towards the fighting and not just away. But tell me about that journey down south.
2: It was really quite eerie because obviously with the war on, there's no lights in the station. So we came out onto this completely dark freezing platform uh, and the train came in with also absolutely no lights all the blinds down this very dark train uh trying to find the right carriage Uh, the lights inside were also all off except for very small ones in the cabins um so sort of quite eerie and atmospheric uh felt a bit like you were taking a train journey into the unknown.
1: Tell me about this region to which you were headed, Ukraine's south. Why is it so important?
2: Well, I think the south is, 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 is hugely important to Ukraine and it's become even more so since the 2014 annexation of Crimea um, because in the south you have uh, the small sea of Azov and then, of course, the, the long Black Sea coastline Uh, And if Russia were to advance all the way from uh, Mariupol in the east, which they are trying to take on on, on the Sea of Azov and and come along through all these cities on the Ukrainian Black Sea coast and add that territory to Crimea, um, then basically you are cutting off Ukraine from the sea, you're cutting off its main export routes by sea, uh, you're turning Ukraine into a landlocked country, it really changes the, the kind of shape and the possibilities of the Ukrainian state.
1: And is that what we're seeing the Russian army trying to do? I mean, are they actually trying to sweep along this coast and just cut the Ukrainian forces and the government off from
2: its sea? Well, that does seem to be what we're seeing, but like everything about this Russian Uh, attack it's been really messy and stop start so in the east we've seen really heavy fighting and a siege of, of Mariupol.
0: The familiar rhythm of bombing in Mariupol that's been under siege for days. Yesterday the bombing stopped only for a few minutes too before the barrage of artillery started. Which
2: is a town that suffered in 2014 and has, has been rebuilt um, in recent years, um, and I think that it has has suffered a horrible amount of damage. There are civilians desperately trying to flee and, and not really being able to.
1: Today, again, efforts to evacuate people from war-torn cities were abandoned due to Russian shelling. In Mariupol, where food and medicines are running out, 400,000 people are stranded in a paralysed, ruined city.
2: And then further along, we've had this assault that has come up from Crimea. And here, perhaps, the the one big Ukrainian city that the Russians have in some way or another taken uh,
1: is Kherson. Russian armed forces have taken the city of Kherson under total control. Civilian infrastructure, critical
2: infrastructure and public transport work as usual. There is no shortage of groceries or staple goods. And then they moved along from Herson along the coast, to uh, Mikolaev, which, uh, as of the time we're recording this, was still in Ukrainian hands, but has been kind of on the edge. The artillery barrage began at dawn and fierce fighting around the strategic Black Sea city of Mykolaiv has been continuing throughout the day. The city, home to around half a million people, has become a key target in the embattled Ukrainian south. There's been heavy fighting there. It's been bombarded with rockets um, on a a frequent basis. Um, And then further west again, you have perhaps the most important city on this whole coastline, which is Odessa, a city of a million people, uh, huge economic, cultural, psychological importance uh, for Ukraine and also for many Russians. Just arrived in Odessa, beautiful sunny morning. They're playing arrival music on the platform at the train station as they always do wouldn't necessarily know that just from this little scene here that this is a city where a Russian attack could come any moment.
1: And Sean, as Russian forces seek to sweep across Ukraine's southern coast, the place where it looks like they're headed is what you called the jewel in the crown, which was the city of Odessa. Tell me what
2: it was like there when you arrived. So I was walking to this sort of wafting uh, chanson music in this beautiful sunny morning. And for a moment, um, it felt like I was arriving in uh, a normal functioning city. But of course, uh, it's not that at the moment. And so when I got to the center of Edessa, the most central streets have been barricaded off Uh, You can't get to the huge, beautiful opera house uh, and you can't get to the central streets where in normal times they're full of tourists and, and visitors and locals kind of enjoying this resort town atmosphere. Everybody checking their phones every morning when they wake up to see where are the Russian warships? Are they? There's been this group of ships that has been kind of ominously moving back and forwards from off the Crimean coast towards just outside Odessa. Um, There's a worry that if a full-scale assault starts, they could try an amphibious landing from these ships, as well as use the ships to send uh, rockets into the city and to check on on the status of Mykolaiv and has that fallen and are the troops approaching on land from the east. Uh, Nobody could quite believe that Vladimir Putin would launch an assault on beautiful, historic Odessa. But at the same time, they couldn't quite believe the other things they've seen in the last two weeks. So people are starting to realise there that, that it is indeed a possibility.
1: And why is it so hard to believe that Putin would bomb Odessa? You said earlier that it's a hugely important place, not just for Ukrainians, but, but also Russians. How do they view the city?
2: Russians have... An almost kind of mythical attachment to it. It was set up by Catherine the Great. Even in the Soviet period, it was this cosmopolitan port that had links with the outside world. It's full of beautiful buildings. Uh, Many uh, Russian and Ukrainian writers uh, spent time there. Um, So it's really this sort of city in in, in the imagination. Um, And I think... Uh, For Vladimir Putin, it does hold a particular significance. When he gave his speech, basically announcing that the invasion was going to happen, one of the only Ukrainian cities he mentioned by name was Odessa. (laughs) And I also think that there was a real feeling uh, in Russia that Odessa was one of the places where there would be a small resistance, but essentially people would come out with, um, you know, bouquets of flowers and, and cheering for the liberators. And how did people in
1: Odessa feel about Russia traditionally? Like, where have Odessans felt like they fit in in this region?
2: There's this this word in Russian, uh, which means, you know, specific or particular and almost everybody that you speak to in Odessa will very quickly tell you that Odessa is a a very particular kind of, of place. It has a really strong self-image and, and it was never really considered to be a centre of Ukrainian patriotism.
1: Okay, so it's this city that sounds like it has a really unique identity and that's much loved by both Russians and Ukrainians. But Those two countries are now fighting a war and they've been fighting each other since Russia annexed the the province that's right near Odessa, Crimea, in 2014. How have those tensions impacted that independent identity of the
2: city? I mean, I was talking to a a 72-year-old poet and philosopher, who called Boris Hersonsky, who lives in Odessa, born in Odessa and spent his whole life there. And he said after 2014, uh, he became much more patriotic. He's, you know, disgusted by Putin's Russia. And it was a very slow process, very slow, but in one direction. Even though he'd always grown up and was raised speaking and writing in Russian, he sat down with a dictionary and started to write in Ukrainian. But at the same time, he told me that he had lost a good number of friends because of this, and that there had been these arguments with other friends who were more pro-Russian. And I think there's also a generational issue here. I think among younger people, there's much more of a sense of, of, of Ukrainian identity. I was talking to people who said... You know, their 12 year old children were coming home from school and saying, why are we speaking Russian? We want to speak Ukrainian at home. Um, And a lot of people said, you know, this city is changing, but it's changing slowly. And with time, with generations, it's going to become a different kind of place. And then I think the events of the last two weeks are going to have an enormous impact.
1: And and what did people tell you about the effect of what the Russians have actually done in the past couple of weeks. How had that changed their view of
2: of Russia? So, one of the people I met while I was in Odessa was the mayor, uh, Gennady Trukhanov, Who is um, quite a character, uh, the way that, he would be described a little bit euphemistically by people in Odessa as that he's a man of the 1990s, um, when the city was uh, a bit lawless and, and controlled by gangs. Um, he's He looks a bit like a sort of skinny Ross Kemp. He's got a shaved head. He came in wearing this peak cap. Um, and he's also, which is very interesting, wearing the a yellow taped armband um, on one arm, which has become the symbol of Ukrainian forces uh, during this war. Uh, and Trukhanov, uh for years has been seen by many Ukrainians as a bit of a suspect figure, somebody with links to Russia. He's on several occasions had to come out and publicly declare he doesn't have a Russian passport. Uh, so he's kind of an unlikely character to emerge as a figurehead of ukrainian patriotism and in his own way i mean a couple of days before i went to see him uh he released this kind of extraordinary video where he's standing there with his yellow armband on and addressing vladimir putin and saying who the fuck are you trying to defend here Uh, in response to Vladimir Putin's claim that this whole military operation, as he calls it, uh, is designed to defend Russian speakers. Um, So I was talking to to Trukhanov, and I mean, it's it's clear that a lot of people think perhaps his sudden discovery of Ukrainian patriotism uh, may be a canny political move. But at the same time, like so many people I've spoken to in the last couple of weeks, It was clear that he was genuinely shocked by what's happened. And he just kept saying that what he's seen in the last two weeks was unthinkable, it was incomprehensible, he just couldn't get his head around it. And I think that was was quite a genuine feeling, and it's something I've heard a lot.
1: And what are people expecting will happen next in Odessa,
2: Sean? Is an attack imminent? Volodymyr Zelensky, the president, uh, came out and said that they were expecting an attack on Odessa soon. There are kind of no illusions now because, unlike people who are watching this war in Russia and seeing a very curated version and a false version of what's happening on their television sets, people in Ukraine are watching Ukrainian TV. They're seeing the appalling damage done to Ukrainian cities. And there's no particular reason why, if if Russia is willing to turn the center of Kharkiv to rubble, which is a a Russian-speaking city right on the border with Russia, why would they not be willing to do the same to Odessa?
1: Coming up, Vladimir Putin thought taking Russian-speaking cities would be easy what his miscalculation means for his war,
2: Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own U.S. politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday.
1: Sean, so much of the news out of Ukraine is really dispiriting, but something in this conversation strikes me as a little more hopeful, which is that Vladimir Putin appears to have deluded himself that Ukrainians would would welcome his troops as liberators and that that might especially be true of these southern cities with so many language and cultural links to Russia. But from what you're saying, that's no longer true in the south, that in some ways Ukraine has undergone a transformation over the past few years in, in a, a really decisive way.
2: Yes, I think that's right. I think it's been, it's been gradual. It's been taken on different forms in different places. And I think... There are still many people in Odessa who would have a slightly different concept of what it means to be Ukrainian than people in Lviv, for example. But at the same time, a lot of those people are looking at Vladimir Putin's Russia and are thinking that, you know, for all, for all the difficulties and for all the inadequacies of the Ukrainian state... It is a democracy. It is a place where people are used to going out and protesting and getting angry if they don't agree with things. Uh, And there's a feeling of freedom. And they look at Putin's Russia as a model. And then you add to that, which I think can't be overstated, the psychological effect of seeing what's happened in the last two weeks. And I think even for some of those people who feel culturally or linguistically uh, or with family ties close to Russia, I think this is a bit of a point of no return.
1: Okay. And so given that, what I wonder is, if Russia does take this territory, is it going to be able to actually hold it? Like if even the South, which they thought was friendly territory, is now either fighting Russian troops or, or bristling and protesting under a new occupation, it just seems like... The battle might be won in these places and, and more places might be won by the Russians in the days ahead. But the war, in terms of actually winning the loyalty of these places, is far from over.
2: Yeah, that's right. And I think that's why people like me uh, and many people who who follow the region never quite in their hearts believed all of this Western intelligence that the war, the full-scale invasion option was going to happen, because this was all very predictable if you spent any time in Ukraine. Uh, so it just seemed kind of confusing. What what exactly is the end game here? And I think that's still the case. Um, you know, we've seen these pictures in in Herson and and the small towns around it that have been occupied of people coming out, waving flags, facing down these troops, singing the Ukrainian national anthem, Uh, I spoke to um, uh, a chess grandmaster called Natalia Zhukova, who is also a local MP in Odessa. And she said to me uh, something that, Many people have said in recent days, which is okay, so what? They come in, they can take a city, okay, they control the city, and then what? What are they going to do? How are they going to set up a functioning government? How are they going to find people to fulfill their orders? How are they going to deal with the fact that there are going to be um, thousands of Ukrainians with weapons who are going to become partisans? That? And that's a question we don't have an answer to. And I think. You know, there are two possible answers to that. One of them is Russia's not going to be able to do this and they're going to have to find some way to climb down because it's already become apparent that these places are not going to welcome them. And the other rather more depressing answer is that therefore the only option will be to flatten these places, mass incarcerations, mass arrests, mass killings. So um, this 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 Crimea plus scenario where the Russians simply walk in, take a bit of territory, appoint their leader, and and have a new Russian protectorate, that doesn't really seem to be on the menu. And I think it feels like a bit of a miscalculation or a massive miscalculation that Putin seemed to think it was.
0: That was Sean Walker, The Guardian's Central and Eastern Europe correspondent. That's it for today. If you want to find out the latest of what's happening in Ukraine, there is a live blog you can check out at theguardian.com alongside all the latest articles. This episode was produced by Josh Kelly and Thomas Glasser. Sound design by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers of Today in Focus are Phil Maynard and Maithli Rao. Additional production by Jake Malkum. Okay, catch you tomorrow.